global financial crisis in 2008 and the impact that had on you and, and your family. What do you bring from that forward to your experience in golf? I'm 12 years old. We live in a very nice house uh, off of Franklin Street in Chapel Hill and life couldn't be better. And all of a sudden we went from that to, I think my dad pretty much losing just about everything. And we had to rent for about a year. All of a sudden I had a, a tent up in our attic for me to practice and hit balls into. And before I was just going to the range at the, the private golf course. And I think a part of why my short game stats are so good on tours, because I would putt and chip all day long because it was free. I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA Tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business. And get the insight stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. Welcome to the Course Record Show. Our guest today is Ben Griffin. Ben just finished his rookie season on the PGA Tour, a strong campaign where he finished in the top 70 and qualified for the FedEx Cup playoffs. Ben played college golf at UNC Chapel Hill and majored in economics. Ben, thanks for being on the Course Record Show. I appreciate it, Roberto. Go Heels. Oh, it's a little early for a little <laughs> ACC rivalry. Uh, uh, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. You started the conversation, so um, when I heard the UNC, I, I knew there was only one place I was going. That's fair. <laughs> Let me try to get us on track. Um, a couple of years ago, Ben, we had just Roberto and I chatting about sort of the dollars and cents of being a PGA Tour player, travel costs, caddy costs, all that kind of good stuff. That was episode five. A lot's changed in two years in the economics of golf. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But tell us about your start as a pro golfer and how did you finance your career? Yeah. Um, I listened to episode five. You did a great job, Roberto. Um, but yeah, there's a finances are a big part of it. I mean, you hear it all the time. Um, anyone that follows Monday Q info will get a firsthand look at it on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. And, um, yeah, my, my start, um, as a professional was a little difficult. Um, you know, I, I got off to a great start. I played on the McKenzie tour and had a fourth place finish in my very first start and then one in my fifth or sixth start, I think. So financially I, I felt like I was rolling pretty early, even though it was pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of professional golf and making it on the PGA tour. Um, but yeah, if you're not one of those top, you know, three, four guys in your class coming out of college, you're not really going to sign up a big endorsement deal. I signed with Strixon. Um, they were very, um, they were very great to me. And um, it was, they were able to give me a little bit of money to kind of get going. But to be honest, it was a three-year contract worth 40 grand, 20 grand that first year. And then the, the next two were, were 10 grand. And uh, in the golf world that lasts you, the 20 might last you two months, but the tens will last you about a month in expenses. So um, it seemed like a lot at the time when you first sign, you're like, all right, yes, like I, I have some stuff, I have some money in my bank account, I can go. And then for me, I, I got off to a good start. Um, but then you quickly realize just the, just really how much professional golf costs. I mean, we talk about caddy fees and other things like that, but at the bottom level, when you have Q school costs, um, you know, you're starting to pay your own rent, you're, everything's on your own. Um, it adds up quick. And one of the things I tell college kids all the time is really make sure 
you're maximizing your opportunity and doing what's best for you, you know, for your future, because in college, you have so many resources given to you. In addition to your academics, I mean, you have trainers, you have your coaches, you have a nutritionist, you have so many people that have your back and it comes at zero cost to you. And it's one of those things looking back on, you know, I took advantage of them, but I definitely probably could have taken even more advantage of them and um, really made my transition into professional golf um, a little bit easier and f feel like I had a better game plan because a lot of kids turn pro and you start at square one, you're your own business owner. You, you go out into the wilderness and you don't really, you, you've never really been taught too much about how to run a business or anything like that, but you're, you know, you're, you're told just focus on your golf, but then other things kind of can distract you along the way. And for me, that those first couple of years when I first turned pro were um, very difficult financially. I, I didn't, I started playing a little bit worse my second year, wasn't seeing the results. And then when COVID hit, uh, there wasn't really much, much of a place for me to play um, since I was stuck on the international tour. So um, I'm sure we'll get more and more into it, but um, it's uh, the financial journey in professional golf can be a roller coaster. You think the newer crop of college guys gets a, a little easier? Like, can they use NIL, stash up 150 grand, and then like get their career started a little easier without having to raise so much money or rely on some of those sponsor deals? I don't know. I mean, it might be too early to tell, but do you have any sort of insight on that? Plus, PGA Tour U. Go ahead, man. Yeah, exactly. I was going to mention the PGA Tour U stuff too. But um, yeah, the NIL stuff is, I'm not sure how how much golfers are necessarily making from it. Other athletes and other sports, I think it's an awesome um, avenue that they're going down to compensate guys that probably deserve it. Um, and in golf, it's tricky from the financial part. The PGA Tour U thing is awesome because it's giving, you know, the guys, maybe not just those top three, four guys who were in like my graduating class. So like the Scotty Shefflers, some of those guys. Now you have a pool of 20 guys that, um, are guaranteed, you know, PGA to being on some form of a PGA tour and those top 10 guys are on the corn Ferry tour. And, um, you know, I have a friend from the university of North Carolina and, um, Ryan Burnett, who just turned pro and he finished, I think eighth on that list and was able to shuffle into the corn Ferry events because some guys ahead of him got tour starts. Um, some guys ahead of him, one, a guy one or two guys, won on the corn Ferry tour that were in the top five. So they moved categories. So now all of a sudden he was eight. They were only supposed to give the top five basically a full card this summer. He ended up playing every single event because some of the other the guys that had been played so well. So, um, you know, for someone like me, I probably would have been in about the same ranking point in my graduating class. And so for me to have been able to get those corn fairy tour starts earlier would have definitely put more money in my pocket. Um, maybe it would have been a quicker, quicker move for me to get to the PGA tour from college. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of different um, things that are working for the better for guys coming out of college. NIL, I'm not entirely sure, but I do think it's an important thing for coaches to know. And the, the more that we kind of talk about it in the, in the public and in the media, for coaches to get the alumni involved more in golf and golf programs, you know, there's a lot of really prominent people that support um, golf programs, I'm sure at a variety of schools in addition to North Carolina, but I know North Carolina in particular, there's a lot of really, really cool alumni that have gone on to sponsor certain guys. And I think the more you can build those connections, um, you know, with teams and alumni and, um, and maybe open up an opportunity 
opportunity to do a sponsorship deal for a kit coming out. That could be huge. And and for, for me, I, I was able to get that. It just took four years for me to um, create a connection and get lucky with the right guy and um, receive some sponsorship that, that freed me up. Wow. I didn't know that about the uh, PGA Tour U, how it worked. If a guy jumped out of the category that the other guys moved up, that's amazing. I mean, to be to come out and play a whole summer on the corn ferry right out of college, like your buddy Burnett. I mean, he's a good college player for sure, but like eighth in his class, like that's not, you know, Rom Ludwig Aberg like territory. And it's just an incredible opportunity. I mean, well earned, but that, wow, that's tremendously different than, uh, than when I came out. Yeah. And he had a, I think he's had at least one top 10 and a bunch of top 25. So he's actually, I think he's comfortably in these playoffs these next couple of weeks and wow. has a chance to, if he were to win, I think he jumps into that top 30. So, I mean, it's it's pretty nuts how fast you can go. And going back to the other two kids that were above him, the Adrian um, Dumonte Chassert, he's yeah. had an awesome on Corn Ferry Tour. And he went in, I think it, he might have been two or three. And then the other kid, Ricky Castillo, yeah. I think he was like either seven, eight or nine, just like that with Ryan. And, and when he won, he was the last Corn Ferry spot to, to get in and he won. And now he's looking at potentially getting a tour card if he plays solid. So it, things can change fast now. And it used to not be that way. Certainly not when you were playing Roberto and, and not for me. Yeah. So you mentioned it already, but you step away from professional golf. COVID kind of puts the halt on everything. Um, you get a nine to five job and then you come back with a financial backer. I mean, since you've come back, you've really climbed the ranks of professional golf. Was it a combination of, you know, just a different perspective or was it that, setup you had with the financial backing and just like hey i can really do what i need now because i have the business side taken care of combination of both tell us a little bit about like ben griffin pro golf 2.0 yeah i mean you hit the main points um and they're all very true um having the the break to have that perspective doing something else come back a little bit fresher that was huge on top of that financial backer that was i mean I wouldn't be able to do this if it, if it weren't for him. And that's Doug Sig and Lord Abbott uh, Asset Management Group in, based in Jersey City. But um, he freed me up, you know, going back to what I mentioned about the uh, college golfers and all the all the resources you have. When I looked back on my career, you know, I had success against Morikawa, success against Scheffler, like really almost every top name that we see today, I, I had success against in junior golf. I struggled in college, um, but when I was kind of working and I was, I made the decision that I was going to, you know, give professional golf another try. I wanted to make sure I, I felt the same way I did as a junior golfer. So for that, I, my diet changed. I, I was drinking more when I was playing previously. I cut that out, um, you know, in season. And then on top of that, I didn't have financial worries in junior golf. All I was thinking about was trying to win. So I was getting transported from my house to golf tournament. I played a two day event on the weekend. I was playing well. All I was thinking about was golf and I was having success. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to have this financial backing, I've got to maximize this opportunity. And so I, I tried to think about everything I did in junior golf and college when I was playing really well and tried to replicate it to my best ability. And so when I kind of was able to free myself up on the course, I wasn't thinking about a, a $2,000 rent payment. I wasn't thinking about you know, water bills, whatever it may be. I mean, I went from thinking about those previously probably to now, okay, who even like, it, I'm very fortunate first and foremost to be able to say these things, but like I went from not having to like thinking about money every single day to now I'm like, all right, I have a pool of money. I don't care if I make a million bucks. I don't care if I make 10,000 bucks. I'm going to be playing golf as a professional golfer for the next two years guaranteed. 
let's enjoy this experience and make the most of it. And so every time I was making, picking up a paycheck, um, I wasn't thinking about the money, even, you know, going back to last summer on the corn ferry tour, I, I had some success. I'm starting to make, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. I go to the Wyndham championship. I finished fourth. Like I could like, that was, that would have been an, an incredible paycheck for me to have made three years prior. But with my mindset of having the backer, I was like, all right, I'm just going to put that into a pool of money to the side. I don't care. I don't want to feel like I'm wealthy. I don't want to feel like I'm well off. I just want to play golf and try to win. And so, um, yeah, the, the mindset's been, been massive for me because I've taken pretty much everything off the table except for trying to win. And Doug's rabbits been, they're the ones that have been able to make this happen. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of different ways you can, you know, structure those deals of financial backing. In your case, was it like, hey, if you make it big, like there's some sort of cut? Did he just want to get you on your feet? Like, how did it work for you? Yeah, it's really interesting. So we have the same uh, trainer. He's uh, he works with Randy Myers and his uh, Randy Myers has done a lot for uh, Lord Abbott and creating um, a big gym for their um, uh, inside their workplace for all the employees to have access to. He's done some training, live training with them. Um, But basically, Randy connected us to I played with um, I played with Doug randomly, him and his daughter. Um, They invited me to go play nine when I was trying to play nine one night in Sea Island. And then once we found out about the Randy connection, Randy informed Doug when I had quit that um, that I was coming back to golf. And so Doug had always wanted a sponsor, uh, a golfer. He, he sponsors a girl on the LPGA Tour, Anna Bellick, um, but he hadn't sponsored anyone on the PGA Tour or anyone on, on the men's golf side. And so he told Randy he wanted to pick a guy from the, the bottom and work him to the top because that's how his career worked. That's what he, he loves. He loves the drive and the, kind of the mission to try to do something that's not talked about. And so I, he somehow like foresaw this story that it was going to happen and somehow it has. But he wanted to do a full endorsement deal as if I was, you know, basically almost equivalent to a PGA Tour player. Slap a logo on my left, you know, left chest and um send me off to the races and didn't want anything in return he just wanted to kind of create a story and and see what could happen and uh it was pretty funny one of the first days i was in the office meeting um different people um that do uh different parts of the business um with lord abbott one of the guys uh, it, it stuck to me to this day but he said you know you're in good hands everything doug touches turns to gold and when i when i heard that i was like well I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, the guy turning to gold, but I, I sure hope I, I do. And sure enough, it's happened. And this guy is a baller. I mean, he's so cool and one of the awesome, coolest CEOs I've ever met, um, you know, um, and he was he was awesome to me early on in my or going back two years to get me back to golf. And he always will. And I told him, you know, I'd slap his logo on my chest for free the rest of my life. I don't really care. You got me back to golf. But um, my agent says otherwise. <laughs> He's more on the business side trying to make it make things happen. So um, great awesome. people in my corner. And I'm so fortunate. Um, but yeah, it's a, it was a true endorsement deal. It was not an investment. There's no big return, although I tell him all the time i'll give him whatever he wants back you buy the drinks every time you guys get together at least i hope Uh, let me do that but (laughs) so when randy called you and told you about this and he said he's looking for a guy at the bottom did you take that as a compliment or as a little bit of a slight or like he's looking for a guy down on his luck ben are you interested how did that sit (laughs) i was beneath the bottom at that point i had already started (laughs) my new job i wasn't even i wasn't even close to like ground level of professional golf i was i was way beneath that so um, i i mean I, I 
I love Mirandy and, um, you know, I, I didn't take anything personally. It was, uh, I knew where I was at. And that's one of the cool things about my, my story is, you know, I was, I was actually playing really well leading up to when I quit and most guys would be like, all right, I got to keep on this track, but I just knew mentally I wasn't in a place where I was going to make it to the PGA tour. I wasn't driven enough and call it burnout, call it financial stress, whatever, you know, taking that step back and working, like I, I really wanted to work. I mean, Doug called me on, you know, it might've been my second or third day on the job, um, which I had quit for probably a month um, at that point um, before he had kind of like really found out and wanted to sponsor me. But um, he called me, wanted, wanted to get me back. And I told him, I was like, I'm not ready yet. Um, it wasn't like I got this offer and I was going to jump right back into golf. I knew it was, this was the first week of May, I think. I knew the way the professional PGA tour schedule, how all the professional golf schedules work from May until August, it's really crunch time. It's not a time to jump in. And for me, I knew I, it wasn't a good time for me to get back into golf. If I were to, I was just getting my business started uh, as a mortgage loan officer, building a book, um, doing a lot of great things and having fun. Um, and yeah, it was a nine to five, but you know, mortgage interest rates were at like two and a half percent. So I was really working six days a week and probably working into the night some nights. Um, but it was, it was cool to get that experience and get that perspective. That was huge. That's, that's really interesting that you got that call and had the presence of mind to say, look, I'm not there right now. Um, this needs to run its course and I need to be fully ready and committed. Uh, I don't think a lot of people would have done that. So, and it's really paid off for you. So that's, that's really, uh, that's clear thinking and very mature. Yeah. Money, money's a, as much about the numbers as it is about mindset. And I think your experience really highlights that our, our extensive research department picked up a little profile on you where you talked about the global financial crisis in 2008 and the impact that had on you and, and your family. Talk about some of those lessons learned then and what, what do you bring from that forward to your experience in golf, both Ben 1.0 getting on tour and Ben 2.0 now as established PGA Tour player. Yeah, I mean, 2008, so I was 12 years old. Um, I didn't really know much of what was going on at the time. Um, I do know now that I'm probably way more careful with my money than my parents were. Um, that's no offense to them, but you know, it's just the industries they were in. My mom was doing mortgages. My dad was in real estate. He was leveraging and, um, you know, I'm 12 years old. We live in a very nice house, uh, off of Franklin street in Chapel Hill and life couldn't be better. And all of a sudden we went from that to, I think my dad pretty much losing just about everything. And we had to rent for about a year. And so it was as a kid, I don't really know what's going on. I'm a member at a private golf course. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm playing public golf, um, you know, in a very quick time span. I, I don't know exactly. I can't remember what it was like exactly, but I remember we rented a house and all of a sudden I had a, a tent up in our attic for me to practice and hit balls into. And before I was just going to the range at the, the private golf course and, um, but shout out to UNC Finley golf course, a uh, public golf course that UNC plays golf at. They um, had my back from when I was 12 until 18. Um, I was paying for range balls. And I think a part of why my short game stats are so good on tours because I would putt and chip all day long because it was free. Um, and I would pay for my half bucket of balls. May have been three or $4. So I'd hit maybe 30 balls a day. And then I'd play 18 for you know 20 bucks or so. Um, but that was some real life stuff that, you know, going back, my dad always wanted to appear wealthy. He loved 
you know, the, the drive of being a big real estate guy and having wealth and showing off his flashy things. And he went from that to having really nothing. And it, it, it was an eye-opening experience to me. Um, and it was something that, you know, he, we've lived in the same house for the last, well, I say we now that I'm out of the house, but they've been in the same house for the last 14 years. So I think they both learned from their, um, from what happened in the crisis. Um, I certainly learned a lot. And um, I actually took a, a course in college. This was the coolest class ever. It was a first year seminar. So only freshmen are allowed to take it, but it was um, only on the housing bubble and the financial crisis. So I read, you know, the big short by, or I guess it's not by Michael Burry, but um, it's all about him and uh, did a project on that. And I was fascinated by it because I was, you know, my life was hit by, by that crisis. And so I've learned a lot, a lot from it, um, certainly from a financial and investing side. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, it was a crazy journey for my family, but ultimately, um, you know, I had some awesome people in my corner to keep me playing golf and keep me at UNC Finley. And then I'll, I, I had no choice, but to go to UNC after that, there was no Georgia tech, there was no Duke. Um, it was, it was going to be North Carolina the whole way. Well, it's good. You paid them back and they've done great things for the school, but, uh, yeah, it's you know our last conversation on the Course Record Show was with Sandra Richards from Morgan Stanley, and she leads their whole practice of private wealth for athletes and entertainers. And you know a lot of these lessons um, came up in that conversation. It's interesting to hear somebody that lived it as a young kid. But at twelve, you really know what's going on. Like you know enough to take the lessons. And then the other thing I find hilarious is that I was the same way as a kid. Like my parents, we weren't in members anywhere, and then my grandparents, where I played a lot like they just didn't want me to go buying like $80 worth of golf balls every day at their club. Cause they weren't free at the like club. We would go hit balls like maybe once a week and we would spend like five hours a day on the chipping and putting green. Right. It was like milkshake, chip and putt, milkshake, chip and putt. And I bet that story is very common on tour where you got to go to the golf course, but you didn't really get to play and you didn't get range balls and you can really learn to play around the green. So that's really cool. This episode of the course record show is brought to you by Holderness and Bourne. Ben Griffin is an H&B ambassador, and I really dig his personal style. He keeps it simple, a lot of white, a lot of navy, solid color polos, either the McDonald, which is the Piquet solid, or the Anderson, which is more of a jersey solid, and then he'll layer the Ward sweater over it, that quilted version he's wearing in the video version of this episode. Check out hbgolf.com for some of those staples everyone needs in their closet, the McDonald polo, Anderson polo, and Ward sweater hbgolf.com switching gears a little bit to disruption in pro golf the last two or three years you know i mean it's affected everyone differently obviously like a polter or a westwood or someone on the tail end of their career has a different perspective than you do you just wrapped up your rookie year but I mean, what's your position on the competitive landscape and the earnings potential like when i was on tour it was pretty simple like top 125 there were three or four playoff events like you know, you kind of knew like what you had to do to to drive some earnings. You had to you, had, you knew what you had to do to to beat certain players and to be in the best tournaments. It's all changing really fast. What's your view on the opportunity right now? What what you need to do to be successful? Yeah, I think as a professional golfer, I need to make sure I'm I'm thinking about solely that, trying to be the best player I can because the opportunities are so high and trying to, you know, really put my time and efforts into thinking about my business in terms of my golf. Really, it's just my business comes down to playing the best golf I possibly can. And anything else is just an external factor that's going to probably get in the way of, of 
my mindset and affect my my golf game. And I learned from Tommy Fleetwood. I, I took two weeks off earlier this summer just because I wanted a mental break. Uh, my girlfriend, Dana, she helped me take that break because she could tell I was a little frustrated with my game. And I think it kind of goes back to when I when I had quit and took a you know those few months off. I kind of needed that back in June or yeah, I think it was beginning of June. And I remember watching on TV. This was right when they announced the merger of the um, PGA Tour and Live Golf or proposed merger, or whatever it even is. Um, and Tommy Fleetwood, they they showed you know the entire course how there's no players, and then they just showed Tommy Fleetwood hitting balls during the middle of the meeting. And I thought it was so cool because I'm a rookie on tour. I go to those first couple of meetings. I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure out what's going on behind the scenes of the tour. I'm going to learn so much from, from Jay and from everyone that's sitting in those rooms and come, and, you know, we, the media makes it seem like there's a lot that comes out of these meetings, but those first couple, couple ones, I realized there's no questions that are getting answered. It's just, they're relaying us some information and we kind of just make assumptions going into the next. And there's a few people behind the scenes that know what's going on, but the players really have no idea. And after going to those first couple meetings, realizing that there's not really questions being answered, I remember having a couple questions that were I thought were pretty good and didn't really get any answer out of them. Um, and then to see Fleetwood just working on the range and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just going to practice and try to win, whatever. That's my horrible accent. But, um, yeah, I mean, seeing that was so cool to me. And it made me realize now I haven't gone to a meeting since probably March. There's been a couple meetings and I'm like, I'm staying away from the golf business side, I'm a professional athlete. There's tons of guys on the corn ferry tour that are hungry for, again, these opportunities you're talking about, Roberto, and they're going to try to work their ass off to, to get to the top. And I've got to do my best to make sure they don't take my spot. And the more I get, get inv involved with, you know, trying to be on the board or trying to learn what's going on, it's just going to get in the way. And I'm a rookie. I have so much potential, you know, the next, hopefully, you know, 10, 20 years, I just need to try to you know, keep my head down, try to start winning and um, let everything take care of itself. Do you think, and Dan, you can chime in on this too. Do you think though that what you just described is part of the reason the tour got where it did? Like you, your biggest stake, your biggest asset is the players. And if a majority of them are like, I have no idea what's going on in the business and I don't want to know, does that over a long term create a problem? For sure. I, and I think you you look at, what Phil's done and he talked about trying to, you know, evolutionize the game. It needed to evolve a little bit, you know, change. And, you know, we, we play this game that historically uh, there's so many different, um, you know, there's so many, there's so much history involved with golf, but at the same time, the world's changing. It's becoming more modern and there's different things that probably need to be different to put the most money in everyone's pockets and make, golf grow and try to take it to new places and I think the tour was maybe lacking with that and what Phil and now the live tour is doing is making it more global they're getting to markets where you know golf wasn't seen as much before and um, I think things are getting better but in terms of being a player yeah I mean you got to think this was this would happen when you have an organization that's based around being for the players it's too hard. I think what we've all learned from this is we need to have this, this new entity, this, you know, you need to bring private equity in. you need to, you know, make it like NBA, make it like the NFL where the players don't need to necessarily know every single thing that's going on. 
but they need to be maybe compensated properly. I feel like I'm compensated properly, but apparently compared to other sports leagues, we're underpaid. So I don't really know, but I just want things to be fair. I want golf to grow. I think it's important as PGA, PGA tour golfers. Yes. We're very serious now. And it's, that's probably changed over the years. It used to be a little more partying on the side playing on the PGA tour. Now it's very serious and regiment regimented. And I think it's important for us to be more like the guys like Ricky Fowler to have a little bit of flash, to have some entertainment value, because that's what's really driving the markets right now in golf is having that flash. And people, fans love going out and watching the guys from the Netflix documentaries that were featured. So the more we can kind of monetize ourselves and build brands and be good people, not bash volunteers, not, you know, throw clubs, the more we can actually make golf look like a really cool sport, something we want kids to get into and also, you know, be truly entertainers. That's super important. And it's hard because we're in a, you know, meritocracy type environment where we need to play our best, but you've got to, we've got to build our brands if we want the PGA tour and, and the money to stay the same for years to come. And we see that out of some guys, but I think other guys don't really quite realize that they think that, you know, I just play good golf. It's going to be given to me. I, I have a corporate deal logo on my shirt. I should just get paid. I don't have to do anything like, no, you need to be entertaining your program groups. You need to be entertaining your sponsors. You need to do as much as possible because there's a lot of people doing a lot, a lot for us on the PGA tour. And we need to make sure we're doing our part to entertain and give back. I like the perspective you bring. Cause I mean, I, there, there's a couple of elements there that I like, right? Like there's the control, the controllable parts, right? Your Tommy Fleetwood example. And then you understanding that you have a personal brand and contributions you can make that also create a halo effect for others. Right. And you hope that your, your peers are doing something similar to create the image for the game. The, the, the part that I don't understand and I have, you know, I'm not a player, right. But like I, but where I quabble in making analogies to call it the real world is players who very selectively throw around the term uh, independent contractor when it suits them, but then, oh, I need to be kept in the loop of everything when it suits them too, right? Like you can't really have it both ways, especially when the tour is trying to cut some like, you know, hallmark deal. Like you just can't bring everyone alone. So that's the, that's the, I won't name names, but some of the quotes that I read where people are like, well, I want it this way at this time and that way at this time. It doesn't work that way. And that's where I, so I appreciate your perspective because you seem to have a, uh, the right sort of locus of control of what you can and not should do, but what you can and can't control and just keeping the world small for your own sanity, maybe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're spot on. And I think the structure of the the tour and just the business entity it is has made it really hard to kind of bridge the gap between the players and the executives and and figure out a way to where we can all work towards the same ultimate goals. Um which they they've tried to you know keep the same goals and the same you know mission statement over the last however many years the PJ Tour has been around, they've been trying to do that. But I think the reason why all this has come about is because there's just been some gaps in that bridge, and um, we're just slowly putting another wood block to try to get to the other side and and all be in the right place. I think there's a lot of gaps in information, and if you leave gaps in information, someone else comes and fills it. That's that's just a fact. And and that to me, like I did my rookie orientation in Palm Springs after Q school a million years ago. And I was just shocked that there was like no, there was no 30 minutes on like the, just the business of the tour. Like fundamentally, this is how it works. We get media revenue, we get sponsor revenue, the tournaments are like kind of independent businesses, like just 
30 minutes on like where everyone sits, what is everyone doing to work towards the common goal, right? Of the PGA tour for the players, for the executives, for the media partners, et cetera. And I think when you don't have that information, um, you don't get to people, you don't get people pulling the rope, right? They don't really pull for a common good and someone else comes and fills it with, Hey, this could be better. Or that could be better. And whether that's an agent or whether it's Phil Mickelson or whether it's whoever. And um, I, I think that's probably changed now. Um, but it, it's an interesting, you know, looking back now that I think the majority of players have like no concept of like what the economics of, of professional golf are. And that's a problem. They definitely are doing a better job at orientation now. Um, they they basically, they, I remember it was before Napa, the first event of the year in the fall, which we graduate the Corn Ferry Tour and we literally have like four days off and they're like, all right, come to, come to Napa. Let's start the PGA Tour season. So we got there early. They, we went to different workshops and we actually learned a lot about the business. But I think what a lot of people on the PGA Tour have realized is the business is so freaking complex and it's so complicated and there's so many like so many things that we don't even I feel like I still don't even know, even though I've maybe been said, but there's stuff behind that information that's given to us. That's like, all right, how did this deal come about? How did this how did this happen? What do the tournaments do? What are the you know, what do what do all the employees of the PGA Tour really do behind the scenes? And that's what players don't necessarily know. And I'll give another shout out to Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley, which are both relatively new new people at Jimmy, especially on the, on the board. And those guys, I mean, shout out to Jimmy. He basically came in last year and he sat in front of the Senate. He sat in front of some very important people and has made basically some of the biggest golf changes historically. And he did this all out of more or less his greater good in trying to save golf because he had no relationship with the PGA. Well, he had relationships with the PGA tour, but not from an executive level. And he came in and he's, I, to my knowledge is doing everything you can to save professional golf and do what's best for us players with really nothing, nothing for him on the other side. Maybe there's some perks. I don't know, but it seems like he's trying his best to do some really good things. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. And I, what you just said, there's interesting. Maybe it was a slip of the tongue or, but you said save golf. And then two sentences later, you said save professional golf. And I think there's, those are two very different things. And I not being in professional golf anymore see that a lot more clearly than I ever did when I was playing. And both of them have valid business interests and things they could do for the good of golf and the good of professional golf. And they overlap in a lot of cases, but I think just being realistic and having some understanding that golf is not professional golf. It's part of a much bigger business game passion for a lot of people. Um, I think it's helpful when like analyzing all these situations. Definitely. So here we are in the middle of between Senate hearings and the PGA PIF deal having to conclude. And people don't really know what's going to happen, right? We know there's an agreement to make a deal, but the, the nuts and bolts seem very loose. So like, what, what do you, what do you think? And what do you hope is going is to happen? Like I'll give I'll make it multiple choice. Like, do you think it's going to, the, PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and Live are going to fold together and create a global tour. It's option one. Like, do you think we'll see something more akin to what we see today, where the PGA Tour and then Live are separate but coexisting? Is there some third model that I'm not even thinking about? These, like, what, where do you think this stuff is going? Like, where, what, and, and what, what would you want it to be? Yeah, the future does still seem blurry. Um, even though we've we've seen in the news this deal is going to happen. 
I don't really know exactly what's going to happen. I could see the, all those scenarios happening. Um, and I think what's going on behind the scenes is they're trying to figure out, all right, which one's the best, best case for not only golf, but, or professional golf, but also golf. Um, and I think what's probably going to happen is this new entity, they're going to create it. There's going to be valuations. There's going to be, um, stakeholders. Um, from what I heard, players are potentially going to be stakeholders. Um, it still seems fuzzy to me. I don't really understand how it's going to kind of shake out, but I know there's some smart people and hopefully there's one, one thing that I really hope for is that there's outside consultants managing what's going on behind the scenes and giving outside input and not just having, you know, a few select people make these big time decisions. I think this is like, this is very huge. Um, and it's definitely going to change the landscape of, you know, professional golf for the next however many years. It's not short term. It's definitely this is a this is a big time deal. And I think it's important that there's a lot of thought process that goes into it. There's a lot of outside consultants giving input, um, figuring out, you know, is it better to have a valuation to have private equity and have different people come in and um, invest in the tour? I think probably because I think the players need to have less of a say um, and just more of a platform. Um, similar to the NBA and NFL. And, you know, right now as independent contractors, it's not like we have a, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, what am I thinking of? Caddies have a retainer. No, uh, I'm thinking about a group. Of oh, people a that, union. Yeah. Sorry. I can't believe I blinked that. But, um, you know, you see that in other sports right now on the PJ tour, there's no union. Um, and there probably should be a player's union of some sort, but it's hard in the current, you know, the current structure of us being independent contractors, it's, it's too hard. I, I don't, I love it because I have freedom in my schedule. I love it because, you know, I can choose what I want to do and how I want to operate my business. It's just, it's so complicated because there's so many players and there's so many people that you're trying to, you know, make happy. And at the end of the day, not everyone can be happy. You know, they've got to make a decision that they think is best for golf and, it's cloudy, man. I, the, you know, the future it's, I have no idea if we're going to go into, into the sun or into the sun or into a thunderstorm. I mean, it's cloudy right now. So <laughs> the idea of private equity injecting capital into professional golf is interesting. It's been brought up by a few people. And my thought is that's like the old Matt Taibbi. It's like private equity is like a blood funnel of money, right? Like if they smell money and returns, they'll go put money there and they'll take it they'll take a stake. And they haven't done that. So you know, if they don't think they can make a return on that investment, there's no reason for XYZ private equity firm to dump a billion dollars into professional golf. And and maybe they just don't want to fight the unlimited money cannon of PIF, but the, I, I'm not sure private equity is the answer. If, if they smelled money, they'd be there. Yeah. Well, they've got to figure out how to structure it. If they, if they want to even do that. I, I mean, I've heard rumors that the tour could be valued at upwards of $10 billion, which to me, it's like, holy smokes, that's a crazy amount. But then you look at the TV deals, you look at, you know, where the, like all the amount of money that's flowing into the tour, maybe that's not far off. And maybe, you know, who knows how the future of PGA tour golf is going to work, how cable networks are going to work in the future. There's a lot of, a lot of uncertainty, but what we do know is there's still a ton of popularity in golf and professional golf Net, I think just from looking at what the Netflix show has done in terms of crowds at certain events, I played with Joel Damon at the PGA this year, you know, no offense to Joel, but like he would not be 
getting the the praise if it weren't for him and Gino's episode on right. Netflix. And there were hundreds, actually, no, there's thousands of people just following our group just because of Joel. And when I see kind of that impact that he's had, and that goes back to, you know, kind of the entertainment value of us as players and shout out to Netflix for allowing certain players to get, kind of get in that spotlight. But, you know, the more we can grow this grow ourselves as players and and do those type of things there's more and more people that are really interested in into professional golf that have never watched it before so there's definitely people to capture and there's definitely growth in golf um the thing that makes me think of what you said is just how much passion and exposure golf has and like how much scrutiny there is on this sports league let's say the tour and professional golf is valued at, valued at 10 billion dollars I read this morning that a natural dog food company in the UK just raised 300 million in capital. So they're valued at what? 5 billion, 10 billion. Like there are widget companies and SaaS companies and all of these things that are being bought and sold for $10 billion all the time. And nobody cares, right? Except for the people involved in the deals. And it just, golf has, it elicits such passion. It's, I've always laughed at Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Like you've got the masters of the universe paying so they can play profession, a professional golf tournament. And then you got the players getting paid to play golf. It, it's just a really interesting and fascinating juxtaposition. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Pebble because I want to mention that that is one of the coolest events I've ever played in just because of the people you're around. I mean, you're around the, some of the most prominent business people, celebrities, and we're playing golf together and everyone's, you know, happy. And I hate that it's a signature event this next year because it's, you know, it's no longer a pro. It's only for the first two days. It's a pro-am. It's only 50, 60 guys. Now it's kind of, I hate, I hate to say it, but I feel like that's kind of ruined that event. I mean, I, I hate to say that publicly even, but you know, I hope everything goes well with it. But you're in the minority. You're in the minority. I played it every single year. I thought it was the greatest event on tour also, but most players don't feel that way. They just don't, they don't, they're too much in their Fleetwood t- driving range bubble. They just don't care to do those things. Yeah. No one understands just how important that event is for bringing all the spot, like the biggest sponsors of the tour, the guys that are literally. Yep. Allowing us to play professional golf are at this one tournament. They're sponsoring all the sponsors. there are sponsoring pretty much every single tour event. That's why we're getting paid. And the fact that there hasn't been bigger names in the past that have played there, the fact that people don't think about the business side quite enough and why we're getting paid and why it's so cool. And that tournament's so important. That one in the Amex. I mean, the Amex yeah. is going to stay the same, but I mean, Pebble and to do it at Pebble Beach. I mean, it's just like, all right, it's like, thank you guys for your support. Here's the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Come play. You're going to play with the pro. Pros are going to be happy. Everyone's going to build relationships through it. You know, it's just, I don't know. I think that event's so cool. And I, I'm like, I hope I, I play really good. This, I mean, I don't even know how I even qualify for the Pebble. I don't understand the hot players, uh, this new signature series. But all I know is I didn't finish top 50, so I got to play good to get in. I hope I can get in because there's some awesome people there and cool experiences. You were 63rd in the FedEx Cup. Um, so, so I was curious, like, is the new signature designation, is that you clearly love Pebble and you wish you were in there and you may still get there. Um, but is that, is that signature designation still something that just rubs you the wrong way in general? Or is it just a Pebble thing that really bums you out? I think it, it's, it's easy for me to say, cause I finished 63, but I, and I'm not in that top 50. I mean, if you're in the top 50, you're not really, you probably shouldn't be complaining. Although I guarantee you there's players in the top 50 that still don't like them. 
Um, you know, you heard Lucas Glover at the Wyndham talk about how stupid it was. Um, and it makes sense why they're doing it, you know, and they want to reward these top players that have stayed loyal and everything like that. And um, and they say they created the this, this 50, 60 number, whatever, however many players end up being in the fields, they created it for the sponsors. But I find a lot of it hard to believe. Um, and I also don't like the fact that world ranking points are going to be skewed now. Everything's going to be it's not going to be as meritocracy as much of a meritocracy as it, as it has been. And that's what the PGA tour praises themselves about. Um, I think it's great when you have rookies come on the PGA tour, let's go back to Morikawa Wolf that year in Hovland, how they're rookies and they're putting the PGA tour events and there's plenty of top 50 golfers playing each and every week on the PGA tour. And they had success in one. And all of a sudden they they've created a name for themselves. They've proven that they're, some of the top players in the world now i think what may happen we'll see how things shake out but these it's going to feel like two tours in a way the the open open events are going to be be a little weaker yes pj tour players are still going to get compensated and that's what they've told us in meetings and it, it makes sense i get it but from a true meritocracy standpoint and a true i want to make it to the top you look at tennis you look at the us open you have qualifying series to get into the main draw and then you get there and then you get a guy like ben shelton last night who beat tiafo and now all of a sudden he's in the semifinals and he you know he's not ranked top 25 in the world so it's awesome now what you're not going to you're not going to see a rookie now win or play really well in an open event and they're not going to get the same they the same highlight the same feel of oh they're one of the top players it's like oh they won a pga tour event but they weren't in the signature events those are the ones that really only matter you know that's where the top players really play so i think there's a little devaluation of maybe certain players um, that in the past few years, you wouldn't see that. Cause you know, a guy like me, I, I played in the players. I played in Bay Hill. I played in some really big events and the players are still going to be a big, bigger field, but you know, Bay Hill, for instance, like I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity had I not proven myself in the fall and played well in the open events and, you know, played well at the start of um, 2023 and proven that I can kind of, I belong with these top players. Now all of a sudden I get in the Arnold Palmer and I finish 14th and I'm right there. You're not going to see that next, next year. And the world ranking points are going to be skewed. You're going to have top 50 golfers playing eight times all together. They're going to get a ton of world ranking points. It's going to be so hard for a rookie or someone who's played on tour with a, I, I say high divisor. A lot of followers won't understand what a divisor is, but basically world ranking works where if you're, if you played 40 events or more, you start dividing the amount of points you make by the amount of tournaments you play. A lot of guys that have been on tour that haven't necessarily won are their advisors probably 50 or even a little bit more. And when you play in these events, you might win, but you're not going to move up. Say I won what was the Honda classic, the world ranking points are probably going to be half next year because the fields are going to be a little bit weaker and I'm not going to move up in the world as fast. The guys that are in this, these eight events, they play solid. They're going to get, so much more world ranking points. They're going to stay in that top 50. It's going to be so much harder for guys to get in the majors. So two things. One, to steal Lucas's words, not mine. What you just described is the WGCs. Okay. So we kind of know how that goes. That's one. And then two, this could be a one-year deal. We don't know. We, we have no idea what 2025 tour professional golf looks like. There could be team events. There could be individual events. There could be, we really have no idea. So Spending too much time and thought on what could be just a complete stopgap single year structure, 
it's probably not worth that much effort. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've thought about it a lot the last few weeks. It's hard. It's hard having an off season. I feel like I've been nonstop for two years and now it's like, all right, let's think about what's actually going on here. What are these? Like, I'm already looking at my schedule. And I'm like trying to figure out next year what I'm playing in. And it's, you can't really plan. Even yeah. if you're one on tour, you can't even plan your schedule. I feel like it's just things happen. Yeah. Well, I hear you describe signature events, smaller fields, less competition, Sounds like another tour I've heard of before. I don't know. Just, just right. throwing it out there. One quick follow-up, and then we'll do lightning round. You talked about Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Who that you've met um, on the tour circles really has impressed you from a business standpoint? Like any notable clear thinkers, whether that's at the tour, an equipment company, in a Pro-Am like the Pebble Beach, one of your sponsors, a media member, like who, you know, are there a couple of folks that you've met that you've just walked away from conversations and just been really, really impressed with? Yeah, particular players. I, I mean, guys that have, I wasn't in a meeting, the whatever, one of the last couple of meetings, but I remember that Maverick McNeely brought up some really good points. I mean, he obviously went to Stanford, very smart guy. His dad, Scott McNeely, um, you know, big time CEO guy. Probably. Fellow ACC guy, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you get Maverick on this show? Yeah, he's, I think Maverick's got a lot of really smart ideas about things. Um, he's, He's one of the, I mean, he's, he just got his pilot's license this year. I mean, he's doing so much at once. I don't know how he's not going to explode, but, um, and I could even go back to like Ricky Fowler, um, you know, maybe not necessarily, I don't know as much about his business, but I know what he's been able to do to build his brand. And then you've got guys like I've played practice rounds with honestly, almost every player. I feel like a lot of really good players, but like Jordan Spieth building his brand. I played with him at the Bay Hill practice round. He brought a kid under the ropes to play the 18th hole. And I was like, that is one of the best things you can do for your image and, you know, to grow the game. And um, this isn't a PJ tour golfer, but, but Harold Varner, what he's been able to do to make a ton of money, but also give back in Gastonia, North Carolina and provide for, you know, I think he's his main, you know, target is minority golf but really it's just golfers that don't have a don't have access to or junior golfers that don't have access to be able to learn the game and he's done so much through his charity to to do that and he's someone who i admire and i've talked about him a few different times on podcasts and um random you know um, guest speaker events and i think what he's done from a business side is so cool. Like, you know, it's not net, like he's making money off of his foundation. It's true. There's probably loopholes, whatever you can come up with, but um, he's doing so much to grow the game in, in Gastonia. And he, I remember sitting with him at the Wyndham championship last year before he accepted his live offer. And he was like, man, I could play on the PGA tour, make 40 million, but if I get 40 million right now, I can put 20 million in my foundation, take another 20 and I can grow golf and I'll live a life happily ever after. And I'll also do make a huge impact in North Carolina, North Carolina. And I was like, that's so cool. Like that's one of the coolest things that I've ever heard. Like most golfers are selfish and for him to have said those things. And then, you know, he ultimately went to the live tour and I was, it's so funny. I was sitting at a table. It was me, Harold Varner and Brian Harmon. Brian Harmon could not be more for the PGA tour at the time. And Harold could be, was right on the skirts. So I, I listened to, I had an hour conversation with them and I wasn't even a rookie on tour then those guys, I mean, they knew who I was, Brian being in Sea Island and Harold from growing up in North Carolina, but I felt like a little goldfish at a table with some sharks. And uh, it was really, really fun to listen to that. But um, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So I'll read a section called tap-ins. These are mostly about golf. 
So first thing that comes to mind, quick hit kind of things. What's a course that you wish were played on tour every year? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. True links golf. It doesn't have to be a specific course, but like, you know, I like the Scottish Open being at the same venue, but it would be so cool if it just like had a rotation. And because I, I played links golf for the first time this year and it gave me such a different perspective on golf. Like it didn't matter if you had a good lie, bad lie. It's just golf. You're trying to get in the hole. And that's what Scotland's all about. And over here in the United States, I feel like especially PGA tour players, they want perfection and you kind of, maybe you need it to have the true competition stuff, but the Lynx golf is is so cool because it doesn't even matter what conditions you have. The greens are good or bad. It's like, you're just trying to get the ball in the hole. And I think the PJ tour needs that at least one week of the year, every year. And yeah, you get at the, the open championship, but it's not like a PJ tour open event. So that'd be cool. That's a quick hit answer from Ben Griffin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the man's got to think too much. You guys have me thinking on us. I don't even know what day it is. Wednesday morning. I love it. I agree. Yeah. I would love to see a little more links golf. If you could steal one part of any other player's game and make it your own, what would it be and from whom? Roy McIlroy driving. Chick the long ball. I'm not going to say any other words. <laughs> He's self-conscious now. What veteran player do you say, I hope I'm some version of him in 20 years? Is it bad that Tiger Woods is a veteran? <laughs> it's not bad. No. Not at all. I thought you were going to go Davis Love there with the Tar Heel Sea Island thing. That surprises yeah. me. But you're staying no. in the ACC, so that's good. His name, his name, yeah, it's so funny you mentioned the ACC in Stanford. <laughs> I mean, that's so crazy. I, I, the Atlantic Coast Conference. Sorry, pretty soon Hawaii is going to be in the Atlantic Coast Conference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, yeah, Tiger. I mean, how can you not say Tiger Woods? Best player nickname on tour. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is JT, just because I'm I'm friends with JT Poston, and they always have a battle of who's the real JT, and so it kind of can get confusing. Um, I don't know. My caddy always like I always have a locker beside Brian Gay, and he always calls Mike my, my caddy Alex Rahamel always calls him BG, and I don't think he's realize every time he says it, he doesn't realize that my initials are BG. <laughs> He always, always also says that. So it's just, I guess that's his nickname, but it, it just annoys me because I never know if he's talking to me or not. But well, so what does he call you? Just pro? I don't know. I'm just, yeah, Benny. I don't know. People call me Benny Beats. You know, I used to DJ back in my career. I'm surprised you haven't asked that question yet, Roberto. Well, this is a business focused podcast. We'll get to your <laughs> mixtapes in the next yeah. episode when we, you know, dive into your, your uh, personal affairs. Uh, check out Benny Beats on uh, all the Spotify's and Apple Music's, folks. All right, buy or sell is my quick hit round. These are more business focused. Um, so the ideal answer would be one word, Ben: buy or sell. Tesla stock. Buy. Simulator golf. Buy. Bitcoin. Sell. Having a stats guy on your payroll. Personally, sell. NIL and college sports. As in, would I be an investor? Like, would I, would I, would do you I think sport? it's good for college sports or bad for college sports? Bye. I think it's good. Okay. PGA Tour U. Bye. All right. Now we're going to do a little local flavor. Uh, Frederica, Ocean Forest, or Seaside? Seaside. It's the only one I'm a member at. Plantation or Seaside? Plantation. 
This guy shot 59 twice on the plantation course for you listeners at home. All right, last question. <laughs> Who's the most dangerous player on Sea Island to get into a money game with? Mm. Pat and Kazire is pretty dangerous. I knew you were going to say that. That is 100% the right answer. <laughs> Some people just gamble. They know how to gamble. It's a problem. Yeah, there's gambling, and then there's no knowing how to make people uncomfortable. That's the problem. You, once he makes you uncomfortable, that's when that's when he's got you, and you got to make sure you stay comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, Ben Griffin. Thanks a million for being on the Course Record Show. Appreciate your insights on the tour. You joined uh, the professional golf ranks at a very interesting time. You'll have a lot of things to talk about in your uh, in your retirement over a cocktail or two. Wild times. Thank you guys. And I'm sorry for rambling on. I'm self-conscious for the rest of my life now. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we love to need all our guests. It's what yeah. makes us a great host. And, um, but wishing you the best of luck starting up here in, in NAP. I believe you're playing. So looking Skip forward it. to seeing you crack, skipping it. Okay. Well, never mind. Well, best of luck the rest of the season. Hope to for see sure. you at Pebble top 50 and, um, and to see you play your favorite event. Yeah. I look forward to, to being there. Hopefully just got to play solid. 